Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Today on CityCast Denver, it's Friday, and our regular host, Bree Davies, and I are looking back on a wild week in Denver. The Broncos have new owners, city council passed a years-in-the-making affordable housing policy, and yes, those two things are connected. Our guest calls it the Walmartification of Denver. Stay tuned for why. Today is Friday, June 10th, 2022. I'm Paul Caroli, and this is CityCast Denver. Welcome back to CityCast Denver, the show about the city that is slowly turning into a Walmart supercenter. <laughs> of course, I'm referring to the $4.6 billion sale of the Broncos to Walmart Air Rob Walton earlier this week. Someone um, sent me a message yesterday and was like, oh, I hope this means they'll like restock the candy shelves at Walmart on Smith Road. <laughs> I didn't really know what that meant, but I was like, yeah, right I was on. like, um, sure. I just made a connection in my mind. I did a story once about the Walmart and Lakeside, and I looked into the crime statistics. I learned that apparently Walmarts are like magnets for crime at night. So Inside? Uh, like people just stealing stuff? I think stealing stuff, but also outside the store. It gets kind of dicey, is from, from what I've heard huh. um, from the head of the Lakeside police, who's also the mayor of Lakeside. I know, it's like the, it, wow. the but, population of eight people or whatever that live in Lakeside. But like, let's talk about that around Mile High Stadium, huh? How about oh. that? Huh? Oh, my eyes are just rolling into the back of my head. We got to introduce everybody. Um, Bree has spoken. Our host, Bree, is here. And <laughs> joining us today is is a longtime friend of the show, Westward reporter, Connor McCormick-Cavanaugh. Welcome, Connor. Thanks for having me. So... We've got, we've got a, I I swear this is going to get interesting topic uh, in a, in a few minutes. But we have to talk about affordable housing uh, because Denver just took a what people are calling a big step forward in this regard. City Council Monday night approved a new policy that requires any new residential development to include a certain percentage of income restricted units. It also increases something called the linkage fee, which other kinds of developers have to pay into the city's affordable housing fund and really just like changes the way that we're we're funding affordable housing. Connor, we wanted to have you on the show because this is your beat housing. So just can you like explain maybe in like human terms what like what is what is this policy? Yeah, so it's a, it's essentially um setting in stone that developers have to contribute a certain percentage of new developments to um affordable housing. So they have to have either affordable housing units in their new developments, or they have to pay a, a pretty hefty fee in lieu of doing that. And for smaller developments, they have to pay into um, what's known as the linkage fee, which we've had on the books for a couple of years now, but it's been um, pretty low. And so this significantly increases the linkage fee. And that fee goes into funding affordable housing projects too. So 
this is a, a pretty big step in the affordable housing direction for the city of Denver. It's many would say it's long overdue. The city wasn't able to do it until recently because of there was a 2000 Colorado Supreme Court decision called the Telluride decision, which essentially scared off any municipality in the state from uh, requiring affordable housing and new new developments. And so in mm-hmm. 2021, the legislature essentially they passed a bill that said, no, y- you all can do this. And, and so, Denver did. And Denver did. And Denver had been working on this policy in anticipation of that law change. They've been working on it since early 2020. So this is a project that has gotten a lot of input. A lot of minds have been working on it. And um, it's it's not a panacea. It's it's a market-based tool. So it's not going to create a ton of affordable housing. But as one council member put it, it's a steady but modest supply. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So uh, it's a market-based tool uh, that requires developers to pay more. And they're upset about it. Bree, can we talk about the controversy a little bit? Like, where where do you see people coming down here? What what is the what's the battle line? Um, I mean, well, Councilwoman Candy Say the Baca was the lone no vote on this, and her argument is that this is too little, too late, um, and that mm-hmm. also this idea of relying on the market to fix our problem it is not working. And I'm inclined to agree with her that uh, why. why so I was thinking, this was keeping me up late at night, as housing does. Um, thinking about the market right now, Denver is one of the hottest housing markets in the country. If you're buying land, you're a housed developer, and you're mm-hmm. buying land to build other housing, it's to make money. Mm-hmm. You're not building housing to house people. Yeah, it's not a charity. It's return on investment. Mm-hmm. So if you're going into this saying, I'm going to pay top dollar for land in Denver. I'm going to pay outrageous construction costs because materials are through the roof. I'm going to struggle finding labor. There's a labor shortage. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to want to make money on it. So I kind of see what Candy's saying is like, how can we rely on that to solve a social problem? It doesn't make sense to me. So where that leaves us, I don't know. I mean, I... Well, yeah. Connor, take that question. How can we rely on this to solve a social problem? Uh, yeah, no, I, I think it definitely won't solve like a massive problem like this. And also this is geared towards households that are like 60 to 70% of the area median income. And so a lot of the, a lot of the criticism from um, homeless advocates, housing rights advocates, they were saying 60 to 70%, yeah, like that's great, but we need it to be... M- deeply affordable, much more affordable for households that are making a lot less than that. And it's not. And and the city has been pretty upfront about that, saying like, yeah, this is this is not a tool geared towards that. We have to use other tools for that. But no, I mean, there, there are some valid complaints to be made about the AMI levels that are being addressed and the fact that this is a tool that is totally limited. You don't you don't solve a massive housing crisis with this tool. You have to do a lot more than that. And maybe that's the frustration, too, is that it's getting a lot of it's being touted as a big solution when in reality it's a a tool in the toolbox, as as city council is is prone to say. So it's one part of a solution, but it is not the solution. And it seems to me the folks that are critics of it 
would say it's just it's just not enough. Mm-hmm. Well, let me talk about the other side for a second because I think that you know we're, we're talking about whether or not this is actually helpful. And and I um I went back and I read a story that uh, Joe Rubino wrote for the Denver Post about this policy when it was being debated, and he was he was doing a comparative look at Atlanta, which has has put in place a very similar policy um, a few years ago and has by many accounts been very successful. But the developers there are still not thrilled about it because what it's meant for them, according to Chelsea Juras, the Atlanta Apartment Association's Advocacy and Public Relations Director, she says that the biggest takeaway for us is that the only way new residential developments within the inclusionary zoning overlay have been able to move forward since the adoption of the policy is with significant financial subsidy most commonly through a tax abatement from the local development authority, which are not guaranteed. So it really, it just does make it more expensive to impose these kinds of restrictions. And that money has to come from somewhere. I think that's like the the big argument in favor of why it's not as deeply affordable as some would want is because it has to be um, like feasible in terms of the finances. And so I know the city of Denver did look at a bunch of different cities that have inclusionary zoning policies around the country, not in Colorado, because there aren't others. And so it was kind of figuring out, okay, what's the the sweet spot of what we can hit? And I mean, most developers that you talk to, they don't want to um, have this policy on the books. They believe that a free market with no limitations will solve the housing crisis, which I, I don't know. <laughs> well, that I, I don't know if that's been proved out by the uh, proven by the evidence, but they would argue that we don't have a, a fully free market because there are so many kind of restrictions and 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 friction points. But no, there there is something to be said about just making the economics work. Well, there. I mean, a true free market housing proponent would say, like, yes, in the aggregate, you would want it to be as easy as possible for developers to make their money building housing units because the more the supply the price will go down because it can meet the demand and there would be less competition for individual units. But the demand is so elusive, right? I mean, just talking about trying to be in the housing market right now, trying to compete to buy a house, for instance, people are getting outbid by cash offers, investment firms, out-of-country purchasers. I mean, is that how do we determine the market even? Hey, that's how, I think that's it. That process, people need to, you need to offer more money to get the house you want. But like, what if you can't and you just want a house in the neighborhood that you grew up in? I think we're That's maybe, problem, maybe we're in a bubble right now, honestly. Oh, Connor, market. I've been hearing that for years though. And I'm like, when is it going to pop? And what is we're that going to look like? We're overdue. But yeah. we've been overdue for a decade. You know what I mean? Like, what is it going to be? What's that thing going to be? I don't know. We've talked to an affordable housing developer, right? Kimball Krangle came on the show to explain. Mm-hmm. Some people are specifically in the business of building affordable housing, and even that is really difficult. Even difficult. people that want to do it, cobbling together these different financial resources to make the numbers work is really hard. So, I mean, I have very little sympathy for developers, but I see where they're like, it's already hard, and you want us to fund this, you want us to fix this social problem. Personally, yes, I do want you to fix that social problem. You wanted to be in how this is where you want to spend your money, then maybe you should be part of the solution. But it's a reality that we can't. It's capitalism. What are we gonna? You know, yeah. you can't. You can't make people 
house people. It's just one of those things, one of those parts of life like healthcare that's like something about it that's not compatible with American corporate capitalism of the yes. 21st century. For sure, yeah. No, like other countries have figured it out, but it's um, it's just like different political philosophies that are able to and allow value. them to figure it out. And values too. Some people are just mm-hmm. like... Yeah. Like the whole idea of like a like merit. I have all of this money Ugh. because of my merit. Like I don't know. I don't, we're we're getting too far away from this. Everyone has their own opinion on that stuff anyway. We they don't Debating need to hear the American dream. <laughs> they don't, no one needs to hear us talk about that. Um, there's one more thing on this topic I wanted to hit with you, Connor, though, because we had Adam Estroff on the show earlier this week. Um, he's running for city council, and he just stepped down from being the president of Yimby Denver. If you didn't hear that show, that's Yes in My Backyard, which is this whole new idea. To to counter the NIMBY idea. It's all about um, we need uh, more housing would be less restrictions would be inclusionary zoning. What, what do you think about how this affordable housing policy fits into that YIMBY NIMBY dichotomy, Connor? Yeah, I mean, I, I think um, I think YIMBY and NIMBY maybe are generalizations that sometimes miss out on nuances that are important for these debates. Are you um, talking about Mimbies? Mim- maybe in my backyard? Oh, no. <laughs> I heard um, Fimby the What's other day. Fimby? Public housing in my backyard. Like PH. PH yeah, Fimby. But uh, no, I mean, I, I think there, there are certainly strong arguments to be made of, um, you know, building more housing is that kind of makes it easier for everyone to get housing. But then... You also have to think about gentrification and displacement concerns yes. that have been happening in, in Denver for so long. Denver hasn't built enough housing. Um, so I think that contributes to the gentrification displacement. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, the, you kind of have to pair those two things together if you want to have a thoughtful policy. And sometimes people get so stuck in their corners that um, that nuance is, is lost in the debate. Do you hear that? Twitter people. <laughs> Sometimes nuance gets lost when you're too stuck in your corner. Twitter's gotten, uh, yeah, I mean. That's why I'm not on it right now. Twitter, yeah, I've noticed you haven't been. Um, Can't handle it. I'm happy tw- for you. Thank you. Uh, I should get off it. Well, I have too much fun on it. I know. Uh, it's like you have a great time on it, Connor, yeah, to be I, honest with you. Yeah. but <laughs> I, no, I, I mean, still read your tweets from time to time. No, it's uh, <laughs> the things are heating up in Denver politics, Twitter. Like people are talking smack to each other and um, like, in some pretty nasty ways. And I'm just like, whoa. Yeah. I'll like send it to a friend. I'll be like, wow, shots fired. <laughs> Yeah, it's 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 feisty. It's feisty. It's election season's heating oh, up, so you got to start already. planting the seeds about who people should like and who people should hate. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's a popularity contest brought to you by Twitter. <laughs> well, let's call that the end of round one. Um, we'll be back after a short break for honestly more of the same conversation, but from a completely different angle. All right, we're back, Connor. This topic is all yours, and I'm just going to throw it at you. You wanted to talk about the Walmartification of Denver sports. What does that mean? Rob Walton, he's a, a Walmart heir. He is buying the Broncos for a pretty penny, and he is uh, related through marriage, through a, a, a cousin's marriage, to Stan Kroenke, who is involved with the ownership of the Nuggets, the Avs, the Rapids, the Mammoth, and then also the LA Rams and Arsenal in England. 
So he is a sports entrepreneur for sure. But so that's now five sports teams that are connected to Walmart. Money. Money. And it's it's pretty hilarious. So is that a problem? I I mean, with, with sports ownership, you have to think about it from... You kind of have to s- set your values aside a bit. You want a really rich person owning your team so that they can pay for really good players mm-hmm. and really good staffers so that your team can succeed. That's probably the biggest criticism of the Rockies, which is the lone remaining of the kind of big four that's not connected to Walmart, Mm -hmm. that they don't spend enough money in a league that doesn't have a salary cap on a good team. And that's why you see the quality. I mean, the team is terrible this year, and it's Mm -hmm. it's because they don't pay enough for good players. So it's good for the Broncos in that sense. I mean, the the Bolin family, Pat Bolin was a great owner because – he really cared about his team. He wanted to win. It wasn't just a commodity for him. Some owners view teams as commodities, and some actually want to win. Um, some, it's both. But for him, he really wanted to win. But as he started to suffer from some cognitive difficulties, and when um, a it was a trust that uh, started to control the team, and so it was no longer Pat Bolin, and then there was kind of a fight between his children over who would own the team. Things got really nasty. Mm-hmm. And so it's a good thing that the Broncos have moved on from that situation. Mm-hmm. Now, we'll, we'll see. Is this the big, the big question is what's going to happen with the stadium? Yeah. Bree, do you want to take that one? <sighs> do I? Yeah, what do you think? I mean, they say that they need a new stadium. This was what um, the president of the Broncos, Joe Ellis, said on Find Monday. Find me something else in Denver that's 21 years old that needs work. Oh. I mean, give me a break. There are so many things in this city that could use funding that would improve our city for the better, that would improve morale the way that sports does, like sidewalks. I mean, I know we can't just, I've gotten this criticism before, we can't just shift money wherever we like, you know, from DIA to this or that. But is this really what we are talking about in 2022? Mm -hmm. A 21-year-old stadium needing to either be totally remodeled or demolished and moved? Oh my God. This is ins- this is like utter insanity to me, and it bums me out for Denver. We really don't care about people. <laughs> it, it puts the the fire that happened a couple months ago at, at the stadium in a different light. It sure does. Maybe trying to cash in on insurance money before you knock it down. Right. <laughs> no, like, boy, you are more conspiracy I mean, that's, minded that's than tale, I thought. Well, that's a tale as old as time in a city. If you don't want something to be around anymore, it's causing you problems. Burn just it, light it burn on down fire. Your bar. You two yeah. are now. Talking about insurance fraud and Mile High Stadium. No, I, I like to I like to traffic in conspiracy theories, even if I don't believe in them, just because I think they're hilarious. But uh, <laughs> no, but the, the, there's there's no there's no good kind of um, utilitarian reason to knock down a stadium that's 21 years old and rebuild it. It's it's totally unnecessary in that sense. The Broncos can still play in the stadium. Fans will still pack it out. Yeah, maybe it's not as great as like SoFi Stadium in California, but it's it's still a solid stadium. But a new sports owner, they think about a new stadium from, I can make more money, it adds to my prestige, 
and I can attract really amazing events. Mm-hmm. Which Mile High Stadium is getting to that point where maybe they're not going to be as competitive for attracting really great events. So for Rob Walton, I could see it making 100% sense. Now, the two big questions after that is, if you are going to want to build a new stadium, where do you put it and how do you finance it? Because in 1998, voters approved public financing for the Broncos stadium. Mm -hmm. The Broncos kind of implied that the team might move to Houston or might move to L.A. if they didn't get this vote through. Ugh, it's such a dirty game. It's a dirty game, and it was one of the most on voters. one of the it's most well-put-together lobbying efforts in Colorado history. And so voters in what was then the six metro counties, because mm-hmm. Broomfield wasn't a county at that time, mm-hmm. they approved it. So if you're going to have public financing, you're going to have to do something similar. It was 75% of the money for that stadium was paid for with sales tax dollars. And of course, the, the crown jewel of that lobbying effort, as you pointed out last night on, on your aforementioned Twitter profile, was the friggin' Super Bowl victory, right? Massive, yeah. So, I mean, the Broncos, uh, a great team for years, but before 1998, had lost Super Bowls. And then finally, they won the Super Bowl in 98. Fans... It ended years of frustration for them. And so that was huge. If they had lost that Super Bowl, who knows if that referendum would have passed because fans would have been like, I mean, this team is just cursed. Like, Mm -hmm. maybe we don't need to help finance a new stadium for them. Which kind of brings us back to the quality of the team on the field this year because they got this new coach, Nathaniel Hackett. They got this new quarterback who everybody's excited about, Russell Wilson. Like, if Walton wants to make the fans happy and make people like w- want to maybe vote for a, a tax increase or a fee, whatever we might have to call it. It would be a tax. Increase. A tax. Okay. A tax increase. Then he would be shelling out some cash to bring some supporting cast around those, those new stars. Right. So if he, but if he wants to move the stadium, maybe he wouldn't be as inclined to invest in the team. You see what I'm saying? It's like kind of like conflicting incentives depending on what he wants for his portfolio in in Denver, his real estate portfolio. Yeah, I mean, I I think the the staff there for the Broncos has done a great job of putting together a really competitive team that I think has a shot to win the Super Bowl. So I think there's good odds that the team is going to do well and that if there were to be a referendum would kind of lead in nicely to, uh, hey, we're really good again. Um, shouldn't we have a really nice stadium like the one that Stan Kroenke built in L.A. Built in Englewood? For the team he wrenched from the people of St. Louis? Yes, which is terrible. And I feel bad for the people of St. Louis in that regard. What Stan Kroenke did well is that he financed that stadium himself. Mm. Didn't ask the public for any money. So maybe that's the model that Rob Walton could follow and then it's then it gets into where do you do it do you do it kind of in the ball arena area do you do it in the dia area which would be super trippy um so those yeah those are going to be really interesting questions to follow well that that kind of brings us back to the neighborhood where mile high is now and Bree, this was when we first talked about this this was your response you sun valley is so linked to this question of what to do with the stadium what, what do you think about Sun Valley in this conversation? Poor Sun Valley. It just gets beaten up and thrown around, ignored, cut off from the rest of the city. 
It has never been treated respectfully or as a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It's treated as an extension of a parking lot of a stadium at this point. Mm -hmm. And even the new developments that they tout over there. Well, so the majority of of Sun Valley's housing, like 90% of it is public housing or um, private privately owned uh, affordable housing. Mm -hmm. So it's it's interesting in that respect. But I don't know. I just feel for the people of Sun Valley. I There's this whole stadium district proposal, like here's this shiny new neighborhood we're going to build that's actually not for you. It's for other people that aren't here yet. Right. But I wonder how that fits into this idea of like what's going to happen with the stadium. Was that the plan all along? was like, well, we're making this stadium district, but we're actually planning on it not being here. I don't know. It's very suspect to me, but I don't know. I just wish Sun Valley got a better, got a more fair shot at what it would, what it would want for itself. Well, I'm just thinking back to 2019 when the stadium district master plan was passed by Denver City Council. I don't recall anyone talking about a, a new stadium yeah, being on the I don't table. Either. It was all huh. about developing gonna, that yeah, developing parking this area. Lot. These parking lots are a huge waste of space right. and let's activate this area. Let's build housing, let's build stores, let's build a vibrant kind of additional neighborhood. And so I totally agree. I mean, Sun Valley is kind of getting could be getting screwed over and they've been screwed over for a long time and they're just kind of getting yanked around i mean there's cool stuff happening in sun valley right now like i don't know if you went to the the night market that happened Yeah, i mean i did paul actually went i did did. it was so great and so like that that is what could be on the horizon but then what happens if you move the stadium then like what happens to this whole master plan that you yeah came up that's with? what i was wondering too is that just gonna then suck all the finances out of there to begin with though i again i'm questioning whether that master plan really includes truly includes the people of sun valley that yeah. are there now or the people they want to attract later i don't know i also just have this it's just so gross to me to think about this rich guy looking down thinking, well, I have a couple billion to buy this sports team and then maybe I want to do this to this neighborhood that I've never been in and have no actual connection to. And all of you will get wrapped up in how you feel about the team and then I'm going to tax you Hmm. to get you to pay for it. It just is, it's just, I don't, it yuck. It's so yucky to me that that's how, and this is not in by any means. This is not a Denver problem. This yeah. is a, it's a sports problem. It's a sports it's problem. Yucky. It's an American problem. It's yeah. how we do things. And there are, there are cases all over the country over the last 50, 75 years where, where the development of a stadium has either totally decimated a community of color or pulled it out of a community and put it into another community. I mean, it's just like, it's weird the way that it intersects with planning and our futures and what our city looks like and how people actually can afford or not afford to be places. I mean, it's just, it's so much more complicated than should we pass a tax to pay for our new stadium. Well, I think we should probably wrap it up, but we've got one more short thing here. We've been talking about housing in different ways the whole whole time today. Um, and uh, we want to give a shout out to a Denverite of the week. Our Denverite of the week is John Parvensky, who is retiring from his job running the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless. He did so for 36 years um, in the 80s. He started with a group of 
only six staffers and now there are hundreds of people working for this organization tackling this issue. Um, Connor, do you know John? Yeah, I've spoken with him a fair amount. Uh, when he started in the mid 80s, they had a budget of $100,000 and now they have a budget of $100 million. Wow. So that's mm. pretty incredible growth. But I mean, this is the preeminent uh, housing and homelessness organization in Colorado and one of the most kind of reputable ones in the country. They work on homelessness resolution. They work on permanent supportive housing. They work on, um, they have a, a healthcare center. So this is like a really all encompassing organization that, that does a lot of important work. And uh, it's, it's pretty incredible that John has been kind of leading the ship this whole time. Um, and he, he has like a, a really incredible career to look back on. I think he has some regrets, like he wishes that the city and state had done better on this issue and probably had gotten, if they had gotten more ahead of it in past years, it wouldn't be such an issue now. But I guess hindsight is twenty twenty, and it was tougher to convince people to fund these, um, solving these issues years ago, but it's a pretty incredible career. I mean, it's an admirable job. It's hard to do that for 36 years. I mean, I can't imagine the day in and day out of dealing with this crisis on an interpersonal neighborhood level all the way up to a policy level. Um, so, I mean, good for him. Go enjoy retirement. Take a vacation, John. Take a vacation. He's going to travel, and then he said he wants to like get back into work somehow. <laughs> oh, which, you know, some people, they just have that itch. Yeah. They just can't not. Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up for today. Bree, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Paul. Connor, always a pleasure. Go abs. Hell yeah, go abs. <laughs> Stanley Cup, this is the year. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. Our producers this week were me, Paul Caroli, and Lizzie Goldsmith. Peyton Garcia writes our morning newsletter. Bree Davies is our host. Our music is by Los Mocochetes with additional mixing by Tyler Lindgren. If you haven't already, subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at CityCast Denver. Tell a friend about us the next time you see him. You can sign up for that daily newsletter I mentioned and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm. Connor, we talked about your Twitter account quite a bit. Do you want to say how people can find you on there? What's the handle? Uh, it's it's Connor, like C-O-N-O-R, Michael, spelled Michael, 28. 28th an homage to Curtis Martin, my favorite Jets player of all time. Okay, we might cut that. I always that. wondered, we might have I always wondered the numericals. <laughs> yeah, it has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> It's not your boomer email address? It's not my boomer. No, I wasn't born in, yeah, (laughs) 1928.